0: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with digital strategist and author Amy Webb about why she makes herself available to clients 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and about how she gamed online dating to find her husband, who was a little shocked by what she had done.
1: He said it was as if somebody had conjured him up. And he said it was such a surreal, out-of-body experience that it spooked him, but in a good way.
0: Here's Debbie Millman. Amy Webb's first online dating profile read, and I quote, Amy Webb is an award-winning journalist, speaker, and future thinker, adapting current and emerging technologies for use in communications. She has spent 12 years working with digital media and now advises various startups, retailers, government agencies and media organizations as well as clients all over the world. Her specialties are future of technology, emerging platforms, content management systems, monetization, fluency in Japanese, conversational ability in Mandarin, fluency in HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and other web languages. Amy Webb wrote a book about why that profile was so wrong, and, more important, what she did to fix it and to find love. It's called Data, A Love Story, and she's here to talk about it right now. Amy Webb, welcome to Design Matters.
1: Thank you so much.
0: So what is it with your obsession with George Michael?
1: (laughs) Uh, George Michael is in the book a lot. His music is described in the book, and rather than doing a traditional bibliography, I wrote a whole separate chapter at the end of the book where I go into deep detail about numerous things, including applying music theory to explain why George Michael's music is exceptional. I started piano lessons when I was four and had a very, very intense musical education, uh, all the way through elementary school, high school, and then when I started music school in college. And, you know, it was the 80s, and I appreciated the music. I really did. And I guess ever since then, I've spent my life trying to convince people of the same, <laughs> the same thing. But, you know, I, he's, my, he's my go-to.
0: Well, I respect your position on freedom, but I really think Father Figure is his best song. I think that bridge in Father Figure is one of the greatest bridges in a pop song of all time.
1: I agree. Father Figure is great, but, uh, I mean, if we really want to get into it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go, sister. <laughs> you know, freedom has the added benefit of the music video. Yes. And it's difficult to separate the music from the video that tells the real story behind that song. And the story is... He was in an argument with his label and attempting to break free and do music on his own terms, which is what that album "Listen Without Prejudice" was. And the video, you know, this is back when video still really mattered. Oh, and, and it was a great. It's it is one of the great videos. It is, and he never appears in it. He refused to appear in the video and instead had the supermodels, and there were just a few back then. Yeah,
0: Linda and Christy yep. and Naomi. Yep, yeah, yep.
1: and Cindy. And there were these massive explosions that sort of led up climactically to the Wurlitzer jukebox exploding and the iconic leather jacket strung with pearls. From that, the Faith video. In the Faith video. <laughs> I never thought I would be talking about this. <laughs> um, anyhow, it, you know, those things exploded and it t- it really did tell sort of a deep story about what he was going through. And for me, that's always been inextricably tied to... Uh, feelings that I have about breaking free, trying to start something new, trying to do something different. And for me, that the song is incredibly passionate and energizing, but I constantly have this reel going through my mind of of what was in that video. And it's inspiring every time.
0: I contend that if he had a better female lead in the father figure video, it would have gotten more traction.
1: The model who was in that video appeared in a few of his videos. And I agree with you. She, um, yeah, yeah.
0: In any case, you studied classical music yourself. You studied classical clarinet and later graduated with a BA in political science from Indiana University. And in reading your book, which we'll get to shortly, I I couldn't help but wonder if your expertise in, in music and the abstract thinking that goes along with playing music had somehow influenced your really incredible ability to analyze data.
1: I think so. There are different ways that music is taught. I was taught to read music first. I was also learning how to read (laughs) letters at the same time. So it was incredibly frustrating. But on the other hand, I see the world in formulas. I can't look at things in any other way. But that background in having to learn not just how to read music, but how and why music works, and chord progressions and arpeggios and time signatures, all of those different things... I think, yeah, it it probably significantly impacted um, and influenced how I think.
0: You also have an MS from the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. Is it true that when you graduated high school, you didn't have a one-page resume, you had a 100-page book?
1: Uh, That is true. And that is because my parents had a different approach towards parenting. They actually weren't the type of parents who demanded that we got A's and everything. They demanded that we had incredible experiences. And so my mother, who was a teacher, did everything she possibly could to make sure that my sister and I had incredibly rich experiences by the time that we were graduating from high school. And yeah, we we each had a binder. And everything that we did was documented and recorded. And again, it was fine if we failed as long as we had some kind of experience that led us to the next step.
0: So after graduating Columbia, you became a writer and a reporter with Newsweek in Tokyo and The Wall Street Journal in Hong Kong, where you covered emerging technology. But ultimately, you decided that you'd be happier and more useful outside of a newsroom setting. Why is that?
1: I wasn't a very good staff member.
0: Problems with authority, maybe?
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, no, it wasn't a problem with authority. It was a problem with the status quo. I think in a very logical but non-linear way. And for some people, that's a difficult process to be around. I was doing some reporting, and and for some reason, uh, people were leaving their babies in their cars that summer for some reason. And so there were lots of dead babies. Um, and I kept having to do stories about them. And I thought— you know, wouldn't it be great if I could um, have the an MP3 recording of the calls that the parents were making? Because it just told that story in a much more emotional, sort of deep way. And I had the technology to do that and the knowledge. And at the time, I was still having arguments with people about why digital was a great place for content. And part of that was my immaturity and not knowing how to express my desire to do something and to convince other people that these new modes of communication were were legitimate. Part of it is that they just weren't ready. And it wasn't, I wasn't a good fit. Um, I'm much better suited to being outside of an organization and um, advising them in a way that's not totally disruptive to their daily workflow. Although I usually suggest things that are totally disruptive to their daily workflow, but, you know, they're in charge of implementing.
0: So you're now the CEO of Web Media Group, which is a digital strategy agency that solves complex problems, both strategically and operationally, related to, as you say, disruptive technologies and emerging digital trends that are, according to your website, catalyzing great change across many industries. And you describe Web Media Group as a very unorthodox consulting firm, and in fact, you hate to even use the word consulting because you believe it evokes a kind of work that you shy away from. Mm -hmm. So why is that? Can you give us some details about the type of work that you do and the type of client that you work with?
1: Well, we advise our client portfolio is about 50% media right now and 50% other, and we're a very small boutique company. And we have the luxury of getting to work with the people that we want to work with so we don't have to work with everybody who calls. And our criteria are, is the organization not just desiring change but ready to embrace it? And how much of a partner will this – group of people be with us.
0: I understand that you are available to your clients 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I read that you even had a client wake you up in the middle of the night because he was consumed with worry about a vendor meeting the next day. And rather than stating an expletive and... (laughs) Going back to bed, you got up, you made a cup of coffee, you went down to your home office and talked through the strategy with him for more than two hours. So uh, is this a regular occurrence? Is this it? Is It is. It
1: is. And that was Marcus, who I love dearly. And this was at the beginning, this was early days of Twitter. And he was at a point in his career, he was a very, very high-ranking executive. And in a situation where it was no longer going to be acceptable for him to ask somebody, what is this Twitter thing? <laughs> um, and at the time, there just was no way to glean that from looking online. So yeah, he, he called in the middle of the night in a cold sweat because he had no idea how to have a conversation about Twitter. I'm and, assuming he didn't call
0: a landline. I'm, I'm assuming he called your... You know, um,
1: I think I probably was on a BlackBerry back then, to yeah, be honest. And so you
0: had it on next to your head Yeah, on your night um, table.
1: I, I do. I sleep with my phone next to me. It is always with me. And it's important to me that our clients, not just our clients, everybody, it's important to me that everybody feels empowered to use technology because like it or not, technology is a permanent part of our lives. So we really do answer the phone regardless. And some of our clients have my mobile phone number. If not, we actually hired a calling center. Um, and they, regardless of where I am in the world or my staff, they can actually patch calls to us. They have. We have a special sort of setup. So, But again we just we just do things differently, and we don 't take projects on because we think that 's going to make us a lot of money. We take projects on because we really really care about the project or we really care about the organization, and we want to do everything humanly possible to make whatever they 're doing awesome. I understand that you 've been criticized
0: by male counterparts for having this sort of emotional attachment to your work. Is it true how do you if so, how do you deal with it?
1: yeah, actually. <laughs> I have been, and that's, you know, that's fine. I don't actually think it's a gender thing. I think it's a level of passion that I have. I don't know how to function dispassionately. That's not not something I can do. And and not everybody takes the same approach to their jobs or their projects or their extracurricular activities, whatever it is. So for those people who who are critical or condescending because of the attachment that we have to the work that we do— I think they're jealous.
0: (laughs) You have a a rather disciplined time management system to... Manage all of your various interests and you measure your time similarly to the way Nick Hornby managed his, managed his character's time in his novel about a boy. Uh, the, uh, management system in that book were 30 minute units. Um, however, you reduce the 30 minutes to 20 so you can get more into a day and you call them units, actual units. (laughs) <laughs> I do. And do you still? I mean, I read this in, yeah. in your book. I was curious if you still, now that you have a child and a career and yeah. a successful book tour and so forth, if you still manage it the same way.
1: I do. And in fact, I built a special spreadsheet um, that's color coded by subjects like some of its family, some of its extended family, some of its work, some of its book, whatever. And those items get put into the spreadsheet at the end of every workday before I leave my office so that I have something like ready to go right when I, I start working usually at 6 o'clock in the morning so when I get to my office. Anyhow, so I'm like very proud of myself <laughs> and I think this is awesome. Uh, and then Maria Popova, who's a friend and she's a genius and she's got this amazing blog, uh, posted Ben Franklin's um, original productivity chart. Turns out he, he like, figured all this out 400 years ago. So he actually... a <laughs> <Sand> spreadsheet. <laughs> yeah, well, he kind of... He actually made a hand-drawn spreadsheet. And he actually did the same thing. He divided his entire day into units. And with him, it was always about efficiency. How can I burn fewer candles, right? Um, but he actually did the exact same thing, which, uh, you know, it's like, damn it, that's another thing that Ben Franklin did
0: first. He <laughs> got, got to it first. Yeah. yeah. So I'm... I'm Imagining that given these time constrictions and your enormous passion for your work and your family and all of the other projects that you have, I'm imagining that you didn't have that much time to date or to find eligible people to go out with in the more sort of old-fashioned, old-school, conventional ways.
1: I didn't. And I was antsy. And I was ready to just get past the having to date a bunch of people process and first date thing and get on to the point where we're just in a relationship.
0: So you turned to online dating.
1: I did. I did. Everybody around me, my family members, had said that true love would find me when I'm least expecting it. And All that serendipity. Exactly. Just I just had to sit around and least expect. And um, <laughs> I don't think that works for you very, very well, Amy. Well, it just <laughs> didn't seem like an effective strategy. It just didn't. <laughs> I would never, like, if, you know, if I if I thought about it, there, there's no other circumstance in life when I would just wait around for, like, hope A and happenstance. Right, It right. just didn't make any sense. Uh, but I listened to everybody. Uh, originally, before I signed on, like, you know, sort of waiting to run into somebody. I was doing a lot of math to figure out uh, what my chances were. I was living in Philadelphia at the time. And I sort of was looking at the population and was looking for somebody Jewish and looking for somebody who hated sports. And I essentially figured out that there were 35 eligible men in the city, in the entire city of Philadelphia. (laughs) Literally, serendipity. How How did
0: you even find the 35 though?
1: I mean, the city of Philadelphia has a population of 1.5 million. Um, figure about half of those are men. So it's 750,000. Um, I was looking for somebody between the ages of 30 and 36, and that was 4 percent of the population. Took it down to like 650. And then somebody who was Jewish, and the pop- Jewish population in that age group was only 2.6 percent at the time. Um, so anyhow, if you go down and down and down, it's, it's like 35. OK. Um, this is not and then much. you have to locate them. Well, no, because in my grandmother, my family's grand plan for me, I wasn't supposed to locate anybody. I was supposed to sit around and wait for them to locate me, (laughs) uh, which just seemed or like hope that somebody was going to match me up with one of those 35 men, which just seemed ridiculous. Anyhow, so I tried online dating because it seemed to me like that was a smarter strategy. Originally, I was excited about online dating because of the promise of algorithms. Algorithm is a scary word for a lot of people. Yes, it is. But algorithm really just means um, putting data into some type of workflow or process and getting the answer at the end. So you can think of it as sort of a elaborate formula. And I liked the idea of an algorithm. I liked the idea of me putting data into a system and having a computer algorithm match my data against other people's data and spitting out those matches. It was basically doing the same thing I had already done, but in a much faster way um, and in a way that I, I couldn't you know, do on my own. So I loved that idea. And signing on and online dating seemed like a great idea for me.
0: So you set up accounts with JDate, Match.com, and eHarmony, Mm -hmm. and then ultimately wrote a book about how you essentially re-engineered the data to your advantage to find the love of your life. I did. And so the book Data, A Love Story, How I Gamed Online Dating to Meet My Match came out this month. It's a fantastic read. It's at times hilarious, heartbreaking, hysterical, and really, really insightful in terms of understanding the back end of what goes into creating a match of any sort in any type of online experience. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about this. So for our listeners that might not be aware of the history of this type of matching, your book provides a fascinating history of the okay. phenomena. And you recount how the first online efforts were, not surprisingly, at Harvard and MIT in the 1960s. Can you describe some of what was going on back then?
1: Well. At the time, I mean, there was a lot going on back then. There, our country was going through a massive cultural transformation. Women were suddenly more sort of free to, you know, date around. And so there were lots of things that were happening. But one of the interesting things was the advent of the computer. And, you know, you can look back through history. And any time a new technology is developed, very shortly after, there is some use for that technology developed for the purpose uh, for sex right um, Pornography is, <laughs> some, was the first biggest um, commercial yeah. enterprise online yeah, yeah yeah so it sort of isn't a shock that we have these big computers available and now somebody's figured out a way to get get people together hook you know hook people up so there are these uh, couple of guys at Harvard guy at MIT and they're simultaneously working on computer matching systems and at the time You had to rent space at a computer. I mean, you literally had to, like, go into an area where there was a mainframe. And some people will remember this. Some of you won't. Old Scantron cards where you had to sort of fill out the bubbles, and those would be fed into this giant, giant computer system. And that would be the data. So what they did was they they asked people questions, and they fed these cards in. And uh, that would eventually spit matches back out one of the companies folded the other company succeeded but then disbanded and essentially you know online dating sort of went dormant again until the the advent of the internet
0: and at that time online dating seemed to be relegated to people that had no other way of being able to meet people they'd exhausted all of their other opportunities and there was somewhat of a patina of desperation to it
1: I think that was probably true in some of the cases. In other cases, I believe the target market was sort of smarter, educated people at Ivy League universities, all girls' schools, all-boys schools. I mean, it's hard to imagine this now, but then there may have been a single payphone for an entire dorm room floor, and that was it, and you didn't have a car, and your other choice was to write letters. I mean, it was very, very difficult to meet people outside of campus, so— For some people, they were probably in desperation mode. In others, this was sort of like the hip new way of meeting people. And they received widespread coverage. I mean, this was all over television. Um, It was in the magazines, like the popular magazines. So, yeah. You provide some marriage statistics that are quite
0: startling and describe how back in 1961, less than 1% of married couples divorced in the United States. Now it's 50%. How did that happen? That's from a from a statistical point of view, just from a purely numerical point of view, that
1: is staggering. It is. The reason is not that people are that much unhappier in their marriages, but instead uh, you couldn't get a divorce. You know, in most states, the burden of proof was extensive. So if, if you wanted to get a divorce from your spouse, you had to prove with some kind of tangible evidence that there was cheating or that there was some kind of, you know, even in a lot of cases, abuse wouldn't have been enough. It was impossible to get divorces, and so as a result of that, there were a lot of incredibly unhappy marriages that sort of had to chug along. And a lot of that changed in the in the seventies and eighties. And outside of some more traditional religions, you know, divorce—you can get a divorce anywhere now. You can get a divorce for two hundred bucks on the internet. Uh, you know, it's it's not that difficult. And so our rates are much higher, but. A lot of the argument that I'm making in the book is that the reason our divorce rates, I think, are high is because we are entering into marriages that were probably doomed from the start. So we're picking the wrong partners. We're picking the wrong partners.
0: And that is a lot of what propelled you to try to game the online dating system. You found yourself dating people despite the algorithm that were really the wrong type of partners, but it wasn't just the algorithm, it was also the information that you were putting into the system.
1: Sure. You can sort of think of this in two ways. You know, for people who are not online dating, but sort of dating in real life, a lot of people reach a few different points. You sort of get to the point of tyranny of choice. There, there are so many choices. There are so many possible. These are the popular people. I'm going out with so many people I can't possibly water it down and you sort of get into this sort of cyclical thinking where you, you keep dating because you keep thinking the next person is going to be better. There are other people who – and I'm, I'm in this other camp where the, you know, dating is just this exhaustive, oppressive, not fun um, you know, cycle and you just want to get out of it. So you settle. In an online space, that is all accelerated. In a single day, you might meet three or four new people – Decide that you like them and then be rejected by all of them or be asked out by all of them or be flirted with by all of them. You know, the, the th- types of things that take time in real life are dramatically accelerated online and it's really confusing the hell out of people um, and it confused the hell out of me. You know, I, I got to a point where the algorithms weren't matching me up with the right type of person, but I didn't want to be alone forever and I wanted a family And I, again, like I've got this sort of timeline in my head at all times and I'm doing the math backwards and realizing that I probably at this point in my life should have been married five years earlier. You get to a point where you either have to settle and accept what you've got or in my case um, decide to break the system and see if you can do something better. So after a particularly gruesome date, that actually
0: started out quite wonderfully. It only turned gruesome when you realized that he was actually married. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You decide to take things into your own hands and go on a sort of three-day bender yeah. to game the system. Yeah. Tell us about that. You didn't shower. You didn't sleep. You barely ate. You smoked an entire pack of cigarettes. Well, I smoked a lot of and cigarettes. And you didn't smoke. Yeah. <laughs> you drank an entire bottle of wine and you weren't a drinker. So tell 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 us about what happened that got you into this state and and what happened afterward.
1: You know, it's interesting. I get asked that question a lot. I get asked the question, did that really happen? Oh, no. I I actually saw the whole thing play out in my head. But this is just the way that I sort of function. I go on benders, work-related benders all the time, and multiple days will go by. And I guess this is gross, but no, I will, like, be in a zone. I'll forget what time it is. I will literally forget to eat for a day or more. I won't take a shower because I just you know, – I'm just focused and people think that's really strange. <laughs> I well, guess it is. As long is. as you're working alone, I don't <laughs> think it really has any consequence. Um, I had a terrible date. I had a great date. I had a great date with a great guy who wound up being a terrible guy and uh, led me to sort of a breaking point and I decided, you know what? I'm done. I'm, I'm done with dating. This is ridiculous. I called my sister who is my sort of constant confidant and she's the co-star of the book and I interrupted yet another fabulous meal she was having with all of her fabulous friends, I said, that's it, I'm done, I'm done. And she said, you remember Mary Poppins? It was a movie that we had watched on VHS tape so many times as a kid that we warped the tape. Um, and she started singing it. And I, She's an opera singer. And uh, my sister said, you need a list. You need to make a Mary Poppins list. And maybe, just like in the movie, you know, Mary Poppins appears the next day, maybe like Mr. Perfect will appear the next day. And at that point... I'd had some some wine in me. I'd had a few cigarettes and I thought, that's brilliant. That's exactly the right. You know, that's perfect. That's what I should do. And I sat down and I started writing and writing and writing. And pretty soon I had three pages of extremely granular, extremely detailed requirements for anybody that I would go out with. Very specific details. Extremely. He could not like
0: the musical Cats. I I take umbrage with this, but that's another interview on another um, day.
1: No, th- this is all. Th- there's some context. Um, the previous relationship that I was in, the guy, uh, the guy listened to cats on full blast, nonstop, <laughs> um, and also I like had to accompany a bunch of people in high school for like music contests and they all wanted to sing memories and all of this is described hysterically in the book (laughs) for those that are listening and haven't yet read it yeah i had like you could like musicals but only certain musicals and if you liked cats at all then like that was a deal breaker for me
0: now you also wanted your perfect partner to weigh 20 pounds more than you at any given time so my question is if you gain or lose weight they have to gain or lose weight with you
1: That was sort of the plan. Um, But okay, so so for people who don't know me or haven't read the book, they're like, who is this crazy lady? And why did she make such a ridiculous list? It's a Mary Poppins list. Um, These things were specific and granular, but they actually are emblematic of bigger issues, right? I don't want somebody who's either such a fitness nut that they're like looking their nose down at me, or they're slovenly and have terrible habits, and they're gonna not help me along in my journey. So the context behind this giant list of things was when you sign on to a dating site, they ask you questions like, are you a cat person or are you dog person? I'm not looking for a pen pal, right? I'm looking for a husband. That question is superficial. Um, so instead, how can we get to a point where the data is not superficial? The data is extremely specific and meaningful. And that's really what the list was about. But of the 72 attributes
0: The list only included about 12 qualities that I could see were really about a person's sort of essence. Um, Most were, or a lot, were behavioral, physical. And I was thinking as your grandmother... Might and wondering where love and chemistry and spontaneity might fit into this.
1: I am not a spontaneous person. So (laughs) I guess for me and my grandmother, um, that would not have been that big of of an issue. So here's the deal. I had been proposed to twice before this fateful night of the list making happened. And in both cases, I had met these men in interesting and unique situations, and they were great stories. Um, Hollywood I, stories, in Hollywood fact. Hollywood stories. I would <laughs> met this guy at an airport. We'd both missed our flight. Um, we, were, we were in Tokyo. We'd missed our connecting flight. We were both trying to get back to Chicago. I thought the guy was Japanese. Um, I started talking to him in Japanese and very polite Japanese. It turns out he was American. I felt like an idiot. But that started us talking. We chatted a little bit more. It turns out he wound up quoting a story that I had written in Newsweek back to me and then I quoted Nora Ephron and said, you just quoted me back to me. Uh, and then I was embarrassed, but it turns out he loved that movie. It was just like this amazing beginning. And by the time that we got to Chicago, it was so late that the only people left in the airport were my parents and his parents who had already been chatting. And, you know, we grew up two hours away from each other. It was like this whole thing that seemed to be very meant to be. And it was passionate and it was exciting. And two months later, I realized that we had nothing in common. <laughs> right. Um, but, you know, like other other people, we sort of trudged along for a year and a half trying to make it work. I didn't want to be in a situation where I was going to trudge along and make it work because I thought that I could someday rekindle those initial sparks. Those initial sparks go away. And the whole name of the game here is how can you meet a person How can you find that thing, that thing that's going to complete you, um, that will continue to complete you as the years go on? And so for me, the passion, the spontaneity, all of that other stuff, it was either going to be there or it wasn't going to be there. But none of that mattered if I didn't have these incredibly important sort of core things resolved. So you make your list, but then you take a radical,
0: unprecedented, data-driven next step. You set up 10 fake dating profiles posing as 10 men that fulfill these attributes that you're asking for on your Mary Poppins list. And you ultimately interact with 96 women in order to understand how to best position yourself online. What was that like? Tell us about that.
1: Well, um, I had built this scoring system, so I wasn't actually looking for all 72 things. I was essentially looking for a combination of those things that added up to a certain number of points. And what had happened was in my drunken state, I realized I, I'd sort of found this perfect guy and, and I did all the math and crunched the numbers and he, was, he would like qualify for me to go out with him. And he seemed like the neurotic Jewish doctor of every mother's dreams, of my mother's dreams. And then <laughs> and I thought, There's, if I think he's this great, there are probably other women who think he's great too. So I decided to sign on as a man to just sort of look around and see what was there profile after profile after profile, there were happy women that sounded happy, that looked happy, that used the word happy like many times. They were showing skin. They were all beautiful. um, And I just thought to myself, you know, in person, these women are probably not as interesting as me. They're probably not as smart as me, but it doesn't matter because I'm never going to get to that (laughs) in-person date with all of these women on this site. And at that moment, I decided I should collect evidence. I should do market research. I should do what I would do with a client and treat myself as a client. So I did. I spent a month um, with these profile archetypes. I had 10. And each one of the profiles had a combination of points that would have qualified him for me to have a long-term relationship. And ultimately, all I wanted to know was, who are the women that are attracted to the same men that I am? What language are they using? How do they describe themselves? How many words do they use? So I, I started collecting that information and I was shocked. I realized the copying and pasting for my resume was not a good idea, right? Um, Javascript wasn't was, going to get not, you there. Like, monetization is <laughs> one of my things was like not, not a great idea. Um, but I didn't know what, what were the right things to do.
0: So you diligently noted all of these women's behaviors and responses, how they designed their profiles, how long they took to respond to messages, as you mentioned, how many words were averaged in their responses. And you reversed engineered what made a popular profile that attracted the men that you were most interested in meeting. Then you were able to create what you have deemed a super profile. But before I ask you about the super profile, I want to ask you about your thoughts. That you, you talk in the book about some of the women being imposters. You even have a name for this type of girl. You call it the Cameron Diaz syndrome. What what is the Cameron Diaz syndrome?
1: All men want Cameron Diaz. The Cameron Diaz that we know in the movies. She's beautiful. She laughs. She's got a wonderful smile. But she genuinely seems like somebody who would really, truly be comfortable sitting next to you at a Cubs game. And the interesting thing to me was that the women that I saw who were incredibly popular, who did online dating well, really mirrored that Cameron Diaz type of person. Fun girl. Fun. They looked, I mean, they really, truly looked happy. Their smiles were genuine. They weren't posed. They looked healthy. They were showing skin, but not in a too, like, sexy way. They were showing skin in a sort of healthy way. They were active. They used language that was optimistic and aspirational, They're describing these days that they have, these activities that they enjoy. And I could literally see myself thinking, like, wow, you actually sound kind of cool. I I wouldn't mind hanging out with you. Or I wish I could be more like you. And I, I learned a lot in the process. And that's not to say that I I was going to try to change my personality to be more like the Cameron Diaz model because I don't think that's possible for me. But it did send clear signals that I needed to lighten up a little bit.
0: I'd like to read a passage from your book about online profiles in general. You say, many of us answer the questions on dating sites aspirationally rather than honestly. We think about idealized versions of ourselves and paint a skewed profile, often not on purpose, but because these sites are designed to make us feel good about ourselves.
1: How do they do that, Amy? Well, any circumstance where you're answering questions that's not a government form, the activity that you're supposed to perform is to answer questions honestly and thoroughly. The more that you can enjoy that process and feel lifted up, And feel complimented in that process, the more likely it is that you're going to continue to click, that you're going to continue to contribute data. So a lot of these websites, you know, instead of saying, are you living in a financial nightmare right now, (laughs) describe it, right? (laughs) Which is actually really useful information when you're looking for a partner because finances and money are a huge component of being in a relationship. They don't do that. They say, talk about your most favorite song and why you love that song or talk about which band you really like. You know, if you think about how you use Facebook, some of the initial questions when you set up an account—met for many of us—it was so long ago you don't remember. But you know, you're asked those same questions, right? What's your favorite band? It's this sort of public persona that we create for ourselves that doesn't exist.
0: Speaking of Facebook, you also wrote in your book, a Facebook profile is in many ways an outfit we wear and the accessories and lip gloss we put with it. We're hoping to project a particular image in order to socialize with or avoid, in some cases, a particular group of people. Sounds a lot like branding and positioning.
1: Absolutely. And that was one of the things that became very clear to me once I had created these 10 male archetypes and had started collecting data This is an ecosystem in which I was the product. And as the brand manager of this product, I should have been fired Um, (laughs) without question. You know, if you think about how you create messaging and, and marketing around a new product launch, why we don't apply those same rules and techniques to our own profiles is really fascinating. Some people are too embarrassed or in my case, they just want to get through to the point where they can see the men or the women that they can date. You should take new photos. For each website, look at the other photos. Look at the colors on the website. If it's a mostly white background, you don't want a color. You don't want a photo that's you know in a dark space that's got too much visual information in it. They should blend in and look amazing. The copy that you write about yourself shouldn't be three thousand words long. In my case, and including and include bullet points, um, <laughs> it should be optimized for that. Ecosystem. 97 words of extremely amazing, you know, marketing copy.
0: 97 specifically? Or 97. Spe- under 100, Under Under right?
1: 100, yeah. 97 um, tended to be the average, you know, for people who were doing this well. So you created the Amy Webb super profile. What did she
0: convey on her profile?
1: First of all, I changed up the photos. I originally chose the three least bad photos that I had. There was a photo of me running... It was like the one and only time I'd ever been in a race. I looked stupid. But I was proud of myself. There was another photo of me with the family dog. And the way that, that the website cropped it, it looked like I had this weird dirty fur hat thing on when it was <laughs> it was really like our beloved pet. The photos that I wound up using mirrored more of what the appropriate photos were for that site. So I had a v-neck top on that showed some skin. I tanned. I wore a skirt. I made sure that my hair looked great. So I I used all new photos. I totally changed how I described myself using keywords that I knew would be optimized for that site.
0: I got the sense as you were writing your super profile that you were very conscientiously trying to improve who you were as well in the best possible way. I mean, you you were going to the
1: gym. You were really making an effort. Right. Dating doesn't happen online. So as I was sort of learning all of this about people who are successful, I was also seeing people over and over again who were fit, who had hobbies, you know. So there was a bit of this that was um, some self-improvement that I needed to have happen. How long after
0: re-engineering and creating the Super Profile did you meet the man who would become your
1: husband? Well, after I launched the Super Profile, I was very popular. But because I had the scoring system, I refused to go out with everybody or even communicate with most of them. A couple weeks later... I determined that I needed a bigger data set because so you're only meeting the 35, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I thought it didn't matter if I moved and there was nothing holding me to Philadelphia. So I expanded my geographic reach. Immediately, I found this guy who seemed great and right off the bat scored uh, the requisite number of points. Which was, I believe, um, 750? Seven, seven, yeah, it was 750 700. to communicate, 950 to like date? Like 700 for me to uh, communicate with him, either for me to send him a message or... Out for of a him, maximum of how many points? 1,500. Right. Um, and then it was 900 for me to go out with him. And then uh, he had to be somewhere in the 1,100 range for me to really start thinking about dating him seriously. Uh, and this guy scored you know, the requisite number of points right off the bat. And we started talking and three weeks or so after that, I went on what is my, what was my last ever first date.
0: When did you tell him about your rating system and the re-engineering?
1: <laughs> Four dates in. I was absolutely head over heels for him. The passion, like everything was there, but I kept scoring him because I didn't trust myself. But I did think that it was probably time to sort of come clean and let him know. And I remember him, just. Something happened on our first date that's described in detail in the book. You both had panic attacks. (laughs) We both had really bad panic attacks. Um, So when I told him about the list, his face turned white again, his lips lost all color. And I thought, damn it, I've just messed up everything. I've like found the perfect guy and now he's really disgusted by me. Turns out he wasn't. He was having a panic attack. But um, it was because he said it was as if somebody had conjured him up um, and that – reading this list of things, literally on that list of 72 things, there's only one thing that does not describe him. And it's the, I'm from, originally from Chicago, and I was looking for somebody from Chicago. That, that's the only thing. And he said it was such a surreal, out-of-body experience that it it spooked him, but in a good way. So
0: one would imagine, given the criteria and the kind of person he was, it would, he would be bound to like your list, because that would be part of how he thought as well, in many ways.
1: To be fair, one of the things on the list was that you had to appreciate the beauty of a well-crafted spreadsheet. (laughs) But, yeah, I mean, the the thing with the list is that it wasn't wasn't really just focused on me. It wasn't like these are all the things that I want. These are the physical characteristics that I want. It was a list of the types of qualities that I have that are going to be mirrored well in somebody else. Like, what's the right recipe? Did you ever feel any pressure to be the fun girl? I did not feel pressure to be the fun girl, but... I was so excited to meet him in person when we finally did, and we really stretched out the courtship process significantly. I couldn't help but be the fun girl. I didn't have a choice. It was just sort of, I guess I said earlier about sort of passion, and I can't hide my passion, um, and I can't mask it. You know, it it was the same thing with him. So my last question is,
0: for those that are still online looking for their great love, what would be the one, two, or three things you might tell them to up their chances of finding their true bishert as you put it so wonderfully in the book,
1: <laughs> the number one thing is that you have to know what you want. I describe how I usually go to go to the grocery store. I don't just need lemons; I need Meyer lemons, right? It's akin to looking for a mate. You can't you can't go shopping for a husband or a wife with a grocery list that says milk and produce. You have to know exactly what you want and have some kind of framework for. Doing an analysis to make sure that whoever the person is that you're meeting has those qualities. So that's part of it. But the other part of it is you really have to treat yourself as a product. I mean, this is really and truly and honestly an exercise in branding. You, you have to treat yourself as the product. You have to understand that in this ecosystem, the algorithms don't work yet so well that they're really truly able to, to match. So instead, you have to think of yourself in this giant catalog, this product catalog, and doing everything you possibly can to make sure that of all the beige shoes, you are the sexiest, most fun, most you know, amazing pair of beige shoes. So it really does mean focusing on photos, writing great copy, using keywords, and not relying on algorithms, but instead coming up with your own system to pinpoint the right people for you.
0: Amy, congratulations on finding the love of your life in this wonderfully original way. You can find out more about Amy and to watch a TED Talk about her marvelous book, Data, A Love Story, How I Gamed Online Dating to Meet My Match, visit datalovestory.com. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Nolman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.